Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 112 for the 2nd 3rd of June 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether Mercury's magnetic field supports young Earth creationism. This claim is fairly recent as far as young Earth creationism claims go, originating on August 26th or thereabouts, 2008, so far as I can tell based on a prediction that a guy published in 1984. It was put forth by young Earth creationist Russell Humphreys, who's brought us other young Earth creationism claims that I've addressed about Earth's magnetic field in episode 9, a changing speed of light in episode 81, and the claim that spiral galaxies are among the top 10 proofs of creationism that I dismantled in episode 92. Humphreys wrote for Creation Ministries International that the Messenger spacecraft, which flew by Mercury on January 14, 2008, measured a magnetic field that was 4% lower than what Mariner 10 measured in its flybys in 1974 and 1975. 4% in only 33 years, something that he predicted back in 1984, that all planets' magnetic fields are decreasing and have been decreasing since creation, 6,000 years ago, or maybe 6,004, or some small number of years ago, but that it's almost impossible to explain in a secular framework or evolutionist framework. Alright, so that's the claim, that Messenger measured a magnetic field 4% smaller for Mercury than Mariner 10 did, fitting with a decaying field predicted by Humphreys back in 1984. In fact, in his 1984 article, Humphreys wrote, quote, Mercury's decay rate is so rapid that some future probe could detect it fairly soon. In 1990, the planet's magnetic moment should be 1.8% smaller than its 1975 value. End quote. In a February 5th, 2008 article for CMI, he wrote, At this rate, Mercury's dipole magnetic moment would be 4.4% lower than it was in 1975 when Messenger would measure it later in the year. He concluded his August 2008 article with this, quote, But the first results seem clear enough for us to expect good agreement with the creationist model. None of the now-verified predictions of the model could work without a biblically specified original created material of planets and the biblically specified age of the solar system, 6,000 years. When NASA's space program began many decades ago, nobody expected it to vindicate scripture so strongly, end quote, and scripture is capitalized. A seemingly important validation, this claim was picked up by other young Earth creationist groups, including the Institute for Creation Research, an article is written by David Coppage, see episode 75 for more on him, Brian Thomas, and Jason Lyle. In fact, just a few years later, Brian Thomas wrote, quote, the science authors wrote that the field strength of Mercury is, quote, 27% lower in magnitude than the centered dipole estimate implied by the Mariner 10 flyby, end quote for that science article. And this confirms that Mercury's magnetic field is rapidly diminishing, which in turn confirms that the field must only be thousands of years old, just as the creation model predicts, end quote. And it's something that comes up not that infrequently on creationist websites, which I occasionally frequent. 
occasionally frequent, probably being an oxymoron, but that's beside the point. The real point is that there are two parts to examining this, as with any claim. First, is it real? And second, if it's real, what are all the possible explanations, and is the one chosen by the proponent of this idea the most likely? As the Sound of Music song goes, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, which would be step one. What does the data show, and does it show what he claims it shows? First, Humphreys used a 1979 review by Ness et al. that summarized the magnetic field observations of Mariner 10. He said that he used this one because it had the smallest error bars, and that it gave a field strength of 360 plus or minus 22 nanoteslas times the radius of mercury cubed. That's just extra units at the end. I'm just going to now, from now on, just give it without the units to make it a little bit easier. So... He gave a field strength of 360 plus or minus 22. Humphreys then used a 2008 paper in the journal Science, one of the two main science journals in the world, by Anderson and others. He said that the paper gave a field strength of 280 plus or minus 50, 20% lower, not 4.4% lower. Already it looks like something fishy is going on, and you can see this in the graphs that he has in the article. It's pretty easy to read the axes and pretty easy to see that these are the values that he's quoting. So how does he get a 4.4% decrease when his own graph shows, and forget the units again, it shows that the field on his graph was 4.7 before and 3.8 now. That's because he used slightly different units. Again, the point is the numbers. 4.7 before, 3.8 now. That's 20% of a difference, not 4.4%. From what I can tell, it looks like he took the extreme low from his value of the Mariner 10 results, as in the average minus the uncertainty. And then he took the extreme high from the messenger measurement, as in the average plus the uncertainty. When I do that, I get anywhere from about a 1% to 8% difference, averaging in about 4% difference, depending on exactly how you get the numbers out of his error bars. He only gives the number that he uses for Mariner 10, not for Messenger, so you really have to read it from the graph, which is important. It's important because the Anderson et al. paper gives a range based on Messenger's flyby of Mercury. They give a range of 230 to 290. Why Humphreys takes the average of 230 to 290 and sets it to 280, I don't know. It should be, from a naive approach, 260 plus or minus 30. That would mean that instead of a 4.4% decrease or a 20% decrease, it's a 28% decrease in the magnetic field. Not 20%, not 4%. That doesn't fit the model he wants you to believe from his 1984 paper. And if he said that it was a 20 or 28% decrease, you'd probably think that something weird is going on. So, what about that Mariner 10 number? He used a source from 1979, and he said that it had the smallest error bars. The problem with this is that people have continued to study the Mariner 10 data to this day, and they've built different models for the magnetic field based on the three flybys of Mariner 10, or by Mariner 10, of Mercury. Mariner 10 measured the magnetic field of Mercury to be anywhere from 159 to 401 nanoteslas. The Ness et al. measurement that Humphreys uses gives a value at the high end of about 360. Now, one might think that this is a simple measurement to make. 
why does it matter when the resource was written so long as it was after the measurements? And why on earth do we, or Mercury, would we ever have new models that could possibly somehow change what those measurements mean? The answer comes from the difficulty in measuring magnetic fields, especially ones that are not spherically symmetric. They're not the same no matter how you rotate or twist them like a spherical one would be. In Mercury's case, and really all the planet's cases, the magnetic field is not spherical. So now, imagine that you have a balloon. Not a spherical balloon, but you know, one that gives sort of the pear-shaped shape. Inside of the balloon is some sort of material that is denser at the center and gets less and less dense as you approach the edge of the rubber balloon. As soon as you cross over that rubber boundary to the outside, whatever's in the balloon is no longer there. You can't measure it. Now, imagine that you have a probe, and you can measure the density of that material that the probe is flying through. And you're going to fly through the balloon. You fly through one random point on the outside of the balloon and exit at another random point on the outside of the balloon. You do this a total of three times. So you have three tracks, three traces through the material in the balloon, and density measurements all along those traces. Can you build up a model that perfectly describes the density of the material as a function of the distance from the center of the balloon if you took three random paths that didn't go through the center because you can't fly through Mercury? You may be able to get a reasonable estimate. It may be a pretty accurate measurement. But now, let's repeat the experiment. Let's put the balloon in a wave pool such that as time passes, the balloon itself, that rubber boundary, is going to bend and flex as the waves go by because the density outside of the balloon changes with the waves and it's going to interact with that boundary of the balloon. Or you could just imagine you're squeezing it. Correspondingly, as the boundary of the balloon bends and flexes, the density of the material inside is also going to change. And let's add two more balloons inside of the main one, each with their own density profiles. Now. Send your probe through three times and take measurements. If I've lost some of you because this is hard to visualize, I think that my point anyway is made clear enough. This is a really hard problem. Mariner 10 made three passes by Mercury, and we measured the magnetic field those three times. And we tried to fit it to various models of the shape of the magnetic field based on other planetary magnetic fields that we'd measured better, like Earth's. As computers became more powerful and as different techniques arose for solving this problem of trying to figure out the profile of a magnetic field, and as we developed different models for the shape of magnetic fields around planets, then our interpretation of those data, those three tracks, and of what they indicated for the overall strength of the magnetic field also changed. By Russell Humphreys relying on a 1979 summary, 30 years later, just because it had the small error bars, he pretty much doomed his model straight away. This is besides, of course, needing to kind of fake it anyway by taking the lowest range of the highest estimates possible to get a decrease of 4.4%. In general, the best case scenario for the creationist argument is that the Mariner 10 data is just not good enough to truly say whether the magnetic field has decreased since Mariner 10 passed by, since the estimates range from about 135 to 350 in our chosen units, nanoteslas times radius of mercury cubed. And this also ignores the later work. Anderson et al. 2011 
not 2008, which was just based on the first flyby, but 2011, after we had entered orbit, gives us a final number based on the messenger data of about 195 plus or minus 10 in our chosen units. If Humphreys wants to use his original 360 number, then that would be a 45% decrease in the last 35 years, larger than he predicted by a factor of 10, and clearly indicating that something is wrong with what he's doing, rather than claiming a modest 4.4% decrease, which kind of fits with what he modeled originally in 1984. But most scientists say it hasn't changed at all. And here we get beyond the creationist cherry-picking, where Humphreys picked the data that he wanted because it shows what he wanted, to another creationist stalwart, quote mining. Let's see, from the Anderson et al. 2008 paper that Humphreys used, the one that he said gave him the 4.4% decrease when it's actually about a 20 or 28% decrease, the authors state in their next-to-last and last sentences of their very, very short paper, quote, we find no evidence for a change in the planetary dipole since 1974, and also find that the planetary field is predominantly and possibly entirely dipolar. Although there are significant uncertainties associated with these results, they are consistent with the presence of a stagnant outermost core. End quote. And remember, this is just from the Messenger flyby data, similar to the Mariner 10 flyby data before Messenger actually went into orbit. Then, there's an abstract from this year's Lunar and Planetary Science Conference by Philpott et al., who concluded, quote, Our results, together with error estimates on the best-fit dipole moment, suggest that any variation in Mercury's axial dipole term over the last four decades is smaller than 10 nanoteslas. That would actually match Humphrey's claimed value, but it would also mean that the term would have to have been only 205 back in 1975, not the 360 that he claimed from the Ness et al. review. As another example of creationism quote mining, or creationist quote mining, here's that quote from Brian Thomas over at ICR. Quote, The science authors wrote that the field strength of Mercury is quote, 27% lower in magnitude than the dipole-centered estimate implied by the Polar Mariner 10 flyby, end quote, this confirms that Mercury's magnetic field is rapidly diminishing, which in turn confirms that the field must only be thousands of years old, just as the creation model predicts. End quote. Now, if you're paying close attention, 27% is more than 4.4%. So again, inquiring minds might notice something is amiss. I realize that most young Earth creationists don't have inquiring minds, but I hope that at least those listening to this podcast do. In this case, the entire sentence is, quote, The best estimate for G10 is taken to be minus 195 plus or minus 10 nanoteslas, one standard deviation uncertainty, 27% lower in magnitude than the centered dipole estimate implied by the polar Mariner 10 flyby, end quote. There's that little term in there that might be a clue to some of you in that Mr. Thomas's interpretation is wrong. Quote, the best estimate for G10, end quote. So let's go back to the balloon example to explain what G10 is. You have your balloon in the wave pool with two other balloons inside of it, all with varying densities. The big balloon represents Mercury's extended magnetosphere, while the little ones inside of it, which are tied together in the middle, 
represent Mercury's dipole. Think of it as the little bar magnet inside of the planet. You take your three passes through the balloon, and you try to fit the most basic of models to the field shape. It works, somewhat. The problem is that you can't get any more complicated than that. You just don't have enough data to constrain the problem. Now, four decades later, you have Messenger in orbit, and instead of three random passes through the balloon, it's actually in orbit. It goes round and round and round and round in slightly different places each time as the waves go by bending and flexing your balloon or magnetic field, and it gets all of this data built up on the strength and direction as a function of where the spacecraft is. With all of these data, you can then start to see the field more accurately, and the simple model from before may start to break down. With all of these data, you can start to see that the dipole is not perfect, that it's not spherical, it, otherwise it would be not a dipole, but it has a more complicated shape. That's what the G10 term refers to, the basic shape. You can make it more complicated by going to higher order spherical harmonics by adding a G20 term, which is a quadruple term for those who are interested. When you do this, the strength of that original term is going to be less, such that you can add strength to the other term. I tried really, really hard to come up with an analogy for this, and the best one I could think of is a slinky, because I think that I probably lost most of you when I said expanding spherical harmonics stuff. So let's say that you have a slinky, and it has one end hooked up to a wall, and you wave the other end so that there is a single up and a single down motion, just one at a time. For the math folks that are listening, that is a simple sine wave with the frequency being the length of the slinky. That's like a simple dipole, a simple G10 term. Now, while you're moving your arm up and down to get that single up and single down wave, wiggle it once more for every up and down, but just a little bit. So instead of slowly moving your hand up and down as you go up, give it an extra little wiggle on the way up and an extra little wiggle on the way down. The slinky is going to still have that main up and down pattern, but on top of that is going to be an extra up and an extra down because of those extra wiggles that you put in with your hand or your arm. They're going to be smaller than the main one. They'll be added in, but they'll still be there. But let's say that you can only measure the main up and the main down, that G10 term. Because of the extra wiggles, you'll measure G10 to be a little bit bigger than it really is, like what people did for Mariner 10. But if you have enough resolution, if you have enough data that you can image that wave really, really, or the slinky really, really well, then you can make out that extra wiggle, and you'll be able to have a G10 term that's lower back to the original level, and you'll have a non-zero G20 term to account for that extra little wiggle on top. Now, hopefully that sort of made sense for most of you. As I said, that was kind of the best analogy that I could come up with, but getting back to Mercury's magnetic field and this quote mine in particular, that's what happened. Mariner 10's data was only good enough to really estimate the G10 term with all of the complications of other higher order terms kind of averaged out. Messenger allowed for the pulling out of some of those other terms, which brings down the strength of the G10 term, which only accounts for the dipole, while the G20 term accounts for the quadrupole moment, and other terms account for other moments, and so you can add in more power to those 
when you have better resolution, which was kind of the whole point of Messenger, to have better resolution on a lot of different kinds of measurements. So while it may seem kind of damning that the paper said that G10 was 27% lower than from Messenger, or than from Mariner, as measured by Messenger, that's just because of the simplifications from coarser data and coarser models. So in wrap-up, hopefully this has been a followable episode by most of you who are listening. If you're left scratching your heads, here's the upshot. Humphreys and others claims that Mercury's magnetic field has declined in the last 35 years, therefore it was created 6,000 years ago, is probably wrong. To make their claim, they do what we see all the time from creationists, cherry-picking data and manipulating it to give them the result they want, then quote-mining from actual scientists to make it seem like they're saying something that they're actually not saying. In fact, the scientists are typically saying the exact opposite of what the creationists claim. I think of it kind of like a creationist board game or creationist's word game. Like, all right, who can take the sentence or the paper that says the most opposite of what we're saying and who can pick out the little bits and phrases that make it seem like they're saying exactly what we're trying to say? It would maybe be a fun creationist game to play back in the back offices that are lined with Bibles that say, Thou shalt not bear false witness. So for those who listen to the podcast feed as soon as, or podcast episode, I guess, as soon as the feed delivers it to you, you may have noticed that this episode is a few days late. Uh, That's because I got really, really busy. It kind of happens when you put stuff off to get a giant movie out and then have to catch up with stuff. Anyway, that's my way of saying that all you're getting is the main segment this episode. I will say, however, that Tam doth approacheth, uh, I think... If you're listening to this when it first comes out, Tam is less than a month away. So I'd like to meet people who are fans, frenemies, enemies. I assume if you're going to Tam, then you like the podcast, or at least have listened to the podcast and have a reasonably not unfavorable view of it. So if you are interested in meeting up at Tam, maybe trying to arrange some sort of get-together like last year where I bribe everyone with lots and lots of chocolate, uh, please send me an email. That would be podcast at sjrdesign.net. We'll try to figure something out and maybe plan a time and do something. So, with that said... That wraps up this topic for the 112th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or send an email directly to podcast.sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment for the pretty much anywhere, on the page for the episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me 
at pseudoastro. These days, I think I'm most responsive to tweets, and then most responsive to Facebook, and then it sort of goes downhill from there. Uh, but I do read every message, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you choose not to do that, then help spread the word. Just tell people. <laughs>